I'm Jeff Cohen. Jordan Rockowitz grew up in a minimally observant family. In high school, he became a self-described socialist and political activist. That led him to notions about Israel and about the Jewish faith that he would later question. He's been nudged by his friends for years to share his unusual story, one that eventually led to Jewish observance. Today is his chance to do just that on Saturday to Shabbos. Thanks for joining me, Jordan. Thanks very much, Jeff. Appreciate it. Where does your story begin? My story begins in New York, out on Long Island. Not the Five Towns. I believe there there is a place. There are places in Long Island outside of the Five Towns. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was I was about from Plainview, Long Island, and was born there in the in the late '60s, and where virtually everybody in in that town was Jewish, and nobody really knew it. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know you mean didn't know it as in they were reformed conservative and didn't practice. Right. I mean, it was it was just the understanding that that everybody is this way, but there was no real sort of communal commitment to being Jewish that I was aware of when I lived there. Was there anything you were doing as a family that was telling you you were Jewish? I think it was once every three or four years we might have had a menorah on on Hanukkah that was buried somewhere in a kitchen cabinet someplace. I'm not really exaggerating this. I don't really recall us lighting the menorah. We may have, but I don't really recall doing that on an annual basis. But I, I certainly do remember the Christmas tree. So you didn't have Hebrew school or any of that stuff growing up? Not until we moved to Arizona when I was nine. But there was, when we lived in New York, there was, it was nothing, pretty much close to nothing. Okay, so your your story takes you from New York to Arizona as a, a family move out there, and are you moving for anything that's related to Judaism? Is there a community there? Does anything change about how you're being raised? I think what happened was, well, the reason we moved is uh, my father is no longer with us, but he was a psychoanalyst and was tired of the commute, dealing with the strikes on the Long Island Railroad in those days, and so they decided to move to a place called Arizona, which nobody had heard of. Uh, they'd heard of <laughs> certainly of Miami, right, West Palm Beach and all those areas, but had never heard of Arizona. Uh, there were very, very few Jewish families that lived that I was aware of. But we were not members of a community in any respect. But I think what, what initially prompted an entry into Jewish communal life, even at a very minimal basis, was I'd come home and I believe, I don't recall this, but my mother said, you know, you said that you wanted to become Christian. And my mother, who really was not connected at all to any kind of Jewish religious uh, observance, got a little bit nervous there and decided to enroll me in a reform temple. And that's when I, my, my entry into Hebrew school had started. But what made you come home and, and say that to your mom? Well, again, you know, it's funny, living in a place now where I'm, where I'm from originally and where I live now in northern New Jersey, where it's tremendously comfortable. There's no real reason to make Aliyah because you sort of already have arrived when you come over here, right? <laughs> but there were very few Jews. And there was a, where I, when I lived there in the mid-70s to the mid-80s, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. It was just kind of actually kind of shocking because I had never experienced something like this before. But it was, uh, it was very clear that I was not really welcome when we moved out there. What's an example of something you experienced when you mentioned anti-Semitism? Can you remember like a specific story that made you feel that way? Well, you know, I, I got accused a number of times of killing Jesus. Uh, that, was, that was a big one. And I think that was by my fourth grade teacher. Um, I think wow. <laughs> yeah, crazy, crazy <laughs> stuff. Uh, and you know, it th sometimes would come by and they, you know, throw a quarter and, and make my, fun of my accent and pennies. And, you know, look, I mean, th this, this wasn't Ukraine in 1936, but that, mm -hmm. that happened, uh, periodically to the extent it's like, wow, I mean, you know, I don't even know why I'm Jewish and they're certainly making me aware that I'm Jewish. I know this doesn't feel good. So what are you doing sending me to Hebrew school for? I mean, it's like this just didn't make any sense to me. 
But your mom persisted and you kept going. Did that work towards a bar mitzvah? What was kind of the progression from there when you got involved? Well, I think I may hold the record, and I'm not exaggerating, for having gotten thrown out of this Hebrew school more times than anybody up until that point. I think it was seven or eight times before they finally got me over the goal line to bar mitzvah. <laughs> um, so the, I, I was not happy about going. Uh, did felt that it really was devoid of any meaning for me, even as a, somebody who was a 10, 12, 13-year-old kid, and um, just resented it. Again, it, it, it wasn't like it was doing anything to counteract the, the feelings that I had of being an outsider over there, but you know, they insisted me going, and I figured right, I'll try my best, and eventually got me to bar mitzvah. And then you figured at that point in time, this is kind of the end of the journey, like I've done my thing, and that's kind of the last step for me at this point? Yes. Actually, it was very interesting, because I'll never forget this. My bar mitzvah, we have videotapes from 1980, but the, the rabbi, when he gave me a blessing, said, you know, I want you to smile, because I had my father sitting you know, close by, and he said, I know that you were only in this for the money. <laughs> this is what he said to me. This was, this was the, mm-hmm. the, the, his parting shot to me. And I'll never forget it. I'm like, well, this is what the official of this synagogue had said to me. You don't say that to somebody on the day of their bar mitzvah. I'm like, wow, this is not something I want to have anything to do with. And so that was the, for a lot of, obviously, this is the story for a lot of other people. The bar mitzvah, thank goodness, was the end of my Jewish journey, at least what I thought was going to be the end of my Jewish journey for a very, very long time as a result of that particular act, actually. There's such a breakdown at that point because of myself also being raised conservative and have so many friends who got bar mitzvahs, and they really just view that as the end of their Jewish yes, journey. Right. <laughs> I, I went to Hebrew school, yeah. I get the bar mitzvah, I get some money, and that's it. Yeah. And they go into public school and never really think about it again, exactly which is really just so sad. Very sad. Very sad. But at, at the same time, a tremendous blessing. I look back in retrospect because, you know, in, in order for me to get where I'm at right now, I had to have gone into the wilderness so now take me to the high school years. So you, you've had the bar mitzvah. So at this point, Judaism is not playing any role. You're in public school, just having like a, a regular education and then going from there to college. Take me into that part of your life. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I just became very interested in politics at that time. I think I was just an angry kid. The type of politics that I was getting exposed to at that time sort of fed that anger, reinforced the anger. Um, but I was also sane enough that I felt like if I'm going to actually uh, be a proponent of anything, I really needed to understand what it was that I was so angry about. So as a, you know, a, lo- a lot of other high school kids were going and you know, getting high and drinking a lot and going to parties and doing all those things, I was really busy studying. I would go to the library and, and sort of pour myself into history books, political science, and it just seemed to have fed a need that I had to really understand what was going on with me personally. And I think one of the things that I didn't mention was my, my parents had, you know, had been separated, had gotten together, had separated numerous times before they finally called it quits. So I guess trying to understand my world a little bit better uh, gave me a sense of control uh, over a world that I had very little control over at that time. But uh, nevertheless, I was starting to understand what was going on out there in society, didn't like particularly the, the world that I was raised in and seemed to have found some other better place uh, within, I guess you would call the socialist world, socialist ideas. So at, at this point, are you just doing this by yourself? You mentioned going to the library, you're starting to get involved in organizations and finding like-minded people. Well, first it started at the library, and then I started getting, getting involved in some organizations in Phoenix that were very involved. They were, it was less socialist and more issues-based. So at that time, the Salvadorian 
uh, revolution was a big deal going on in the you know, U.S. involvement in Central America, U.S. involvement in South Africa. You know, uh, those kinds of issues were really at the forefront of most people's political agendas. And so I started getting involved with an organization over there that was national at the time and putting some structure into the beliefs that I uh, were, were developing at that time. Is this helping you somehow make peace with how you're feeling, connecting to this cause, or how is that all reconciling at this point in your life? Well, I, I think it, it wasn't really helping me in that regard, but what it did was give me a sense of control, a sense that there was a better world out there than the world that I came from, and that in order for me to take myself seriously, I needed to actually do something about it. So that's when I started to get more involved politically with a number of these organizations uh, at 16, 17 years old. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I'm a voracious reader. And I knew a lot more about the issues than the people that I started to debate. Adults, certainly the kids, didn't know anything at that time. And you have to understand, I was living in Arizona. At that time, Arizona, I mean, this is Barry Goldwater country. This is not the Arizona of 2020, but this is the Arizona mm -hmm. of the mid-70s to 80s. Ronald Reagan, Barry Goldwater country. So you can only imagine that, forget about a Democrat, but somebody who was already having like socialist ideas, leftist ideas. I mean, we talk about being an outlier. I was an outlier. And actually, we wore that as a badge of honor, quite frankly. So you just used this phrase, getting involved. So that can mean a lot of things. That can mean joining organizations. It can mean marching. It can mean protesting. What, what did getting involved mean at that point? Meaning going to protests and organizing different communities around the sanctuary movement, which is actually still a major issue today, where certain cities essentially do not let federal agents come in and trying to deport undocumented workers. So I was very involved in that, and Phoenix was a major uh, city at that time that was not allowing that to happen, but we were advocating for this. So we would go to marches, uh, went to, uh, there's a humongous nuclear power plant outside of Phoenix, so I was involved in the anti-nuclear uh, movement at that time, uh, very involved in anything really connected to the Central American uh, solidarity movement at that time in the mid-80s, as well as marching for and uh, boycotting companies that were involved or had investments in South Africa. So, so two questions about this. One, are the protests at this point mostly peaceful or any of them getting violent? And second part is, are you seeing results or fruits of the labor of the time you're putting into these protests? When you're involved in the... Um the far left movement, the bar is very low as to your expectations. What I mean by that is one of the things that I did was I was selling these kind of socialist newspapers out in the barrio, South Phoenix. So I spoke Spanish at that time, still speak it pretty well, but what I would do is take a stack of newspapers and my goal was to get those papers sold. And I knew that if I got those papers sold, that it was just a matter of time before everything changed in this country. That's the, way that, that's the way that I looked at it, right? So I'd come up and I'm like, wow, I just sold 30 newspapers. We're, we're getting close. We're getting, we're getting, we're, right. we're getting close. Oh, yeah. yeah things, things are definitely in motion. So the bar was very low. I had a tremendous feeling of success in being able to do that. But I, I would say that the protests um, sometimes got violent. I was in the middle of a few of those. The counter-protesters were usually average Phoenicians, <laughs> We're seeing a bunch mm -hmm. of crazy left-wing people kind of trying to take over this city, and um, occasionally it got violent. Oftentimes, it, it would, if it didn't get violent, it was because the police were out in full riot gear. But there were, there were definitely moments when that happened. I'm wondering if when you think about 
Orthodox Judaism, and people always point to this sense of community and living somewhere where you're surrounded by like-minded people. Did you have that feeling of, I'm part of something now, I've joined something, like this is my family? Were you, were you getting that feeling of like love and respect coming to you by joining these kind of organizations? Um, love, no. Respect, yes, because a lot of the people that were involved in those movements that I was connected to were educated people. A lot of them were also were workers, you know, working class folks. But respect to the fact that somebody who was 17 years old was as knowledgeable as at least I thought that I was at that time and was willing to put themselves out on line, that I was actually willing to do something. So in that respect, yeah, I mean, it definitely gave me a sense of, of connectedness in a way that I had not had before. Okay, so you're now getting close to like those college years. Are you thinking that what you're involved in is going to somehow turn into what you're going to do with your life? Or are you separating out, I'm going to go to college and have a profession, but this is something I'm going to be doing with my free time? That's a great question. So I was a history major, actually focused in Latin American and Soviet history. And I really thought that I was going to become a college professor. I was very much geared in that way by my professors to go and and, uh, get my PhD. But in the back of my head... I'm somebody who always is sort of looking at the world with a siege mentality that, okay, well, if I do this, then it's really going to limit my options. I don't want to have to be stuck, you know, uh, trying to teach history in the middle of Nebraska, wherever I can get a job. So I decided that um, I was not going to go that route and um, ultimately decided to go to law school. But a lot of political things happened while I was an undergraduate that st- I was thinking to myself, maybe I may, I may not even be able to get into law school with some of the things that, that I <laughs> things that I was involved with, you know, but uh, but I, I ultimately decided I was not going to go in that direction to teach. Okay, so you mentioned college and law school. Where did you go to each? And then I want to back up after that and talk about some of the things that happened in college. So I went to Stony Brook University as an undergrad, and then I went to Seton Hall University School of Law in Newark to get my JD. Okay, so in the college years, the, it sounds like the activism continues. So where does it go from what you're doing in high school and what's now happening at that period of your life? Right. Well, I, at that point, I really consider myself very well read in a lot of the, um, you know, it's funny it's to talk about these kinds of things because it seems so far from where I'm at right now. But I, I read everything from Marx, I read everything from Lenin, read everything from Trotsky, read everything from about Eugene Debs. I mean, you, you name it, I, I knew my stuff. At least, again, I thought that I knew my stuff. And my goal really was to make a real impact in the academic world through my beliefs. So what that meant was that when the graduate students were trying to unionize the Stony Brook, I was very involved with this organization that I had joined in Phoenix as their chapter president in Stony Brook. I was, I got a, a bunch of people, I would support Long Island Railroad workers who were striking. I myself actually worked in a factory for a while uh, with the idea is not because I really had any interest in working in a factory. I mean, I needed money, but the goal was is to try and kind of infiltrate the factory, you know, speak to the workers about exploitation and all of these kinds of things. And I really connected with them. This wasn't like a, some upper middle class kid that's coming there to, to be very paternalistic and teach them things they don't know. But I really connected with their struggles. And I think that they connected with me. And, you know, a lot of those kinds of discussions move to, to the left, to socialist, you know, ideas, but they never really, you know, they, they, these are people trying to feed their families, trying to get a piece of the American dream. They weren't, they weren't interested in talking about overthrowing the government or, you know, any of those kinds of stuff. But I was very involved in that. And we, we also got involved in trying to get Stony Brook University to divest from South Africa. We took over the administration building. I'll never forget that. And we just, we got a whole bunch of people, stormed the administration building, threw out everybody in the administration, locked the doors. 
Just tell them, you know, just get out. We're taking over. And um, they called the uh, Suffolk County Police Department, and they came in full riot gear. And ultimately, we decided to leave the, the administration building. But when I walked out, because they essentially gave us an hour, they said, you've got an hour to make it so we're coming in. And when I walked out with a number of other people, mostly people left, these guys were huge cops, right? Billy clubs out, the face shield. I mean, they, they were ready to go. And I was going to, there was no question that I had stayed that I was going to get, you know, I was really going to get taken out by these guys. I looked at the situation. I just said, I, I don't know if this is really the direction that we should be going as far as that kind of action and decided ultimately that that's, that's not the approach that I thought was going to be most productive in trying to do, to disseminate what I thought were really the correct ideas, the, the, the truth, really. That's what I thought at that time. And so you mentioned from earlier in your childhood anti-Semitism. So I'm just wondering, sometimes with these organizations, somehow, way, anti-Semitism finds its way into the belief system. So was any of the stuff that was going on crossing over into thoughts on Israel? And, and where were you at that point? Well, Israel was really a peripheral part of the political movement at that time, because even though Israel had invaded Lebanon in 82, and we're talking about the mid-80s, front and center was U.S. involvement in South Africa and Central America. But that being said, but because we were socialists, the idea that, that Israel exists was really kind of anathema. It really didn't get the level of attention that it does today, not even remotely close to that. And as far as the anti-Semitism, I mean, a lot of, listen, a lot of the people, and this is going to come as a shock to nobody, but a lot of the people that were involved in those movements, including myself, right, were Jewish, but very uncomfortable with being Jewish and what that meant and, and the white privilege and all of those kinds of things, the exploiter versus the exploited, all those kinds of things, those negative stereotypes about Jewish people that really we internalized. You know, I wouldn't call myself a self-hating Jew, but I was very uncomfortable being identified as Jewish for the sake of being Jewish. It's really amazing what you just said, because we're going to, as the story unfolds, we're going to find out Jordan is an Orthodox Jew today. Everything <laughs> that you just said would lead you to believe there's no way, no how, right. that that's where this story is going to go. So now right. take me to the almost getting beaten up by the clubs and the police and, and the violence that was about to happen. So was that a turning point where you say, you know what, something's not right here. And are you going in a different direction now? career-wise or your activism, or what changes from that day forward? Uh, not yet. So what, what really changed for me was we knew everything that was going on that was a problem in the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union was still the antithesis of the United States, right? So when the East Bloc fell in 89, like a, like a bunch of matchsticks, really, it made me really think what it was that I was aspiring to. I just I was not involved, by the way, at all in the in the uh, the Refusnik uh, support movement here and the freeing the Soviet Jews at all. It did not cross my path in the least. But the fact that an entire system could fall apart in a matter of weeks, not you know decades, but in a matter of weeks, uh, made me start to really rethink at the beginning. So sort of the crack in the ice. And then I I actually did take a trip to the Soviet Union in 1990 with my father and my brother, we we're going to uh, Eretz HaKodesh, Lahav deal. But I mean, that's, you know, that's for me was going to see Lenin's tomb was, it was, so I still kind of hung on to this, going over there and seeing the misery on people's faces. And this is by the time during Gorbachev's time, during Perestroika. So there were some movements towards free enterprise there, but just seeing people being used in some sort of social experiment was a real problem for me. 
You know, I mean, I, I really enjoyed people, but when I was part of the left wing movement, we really didn't like people what we loved the masses, you know, but I liked people and I didn't like seeing people suffer like that. And that made me really start to rethink my perspective on what I thought truth was. You mentioned before about law school. So w what happens now at that part of your life? Well, I mean, you know, I think I came back from the Soviet Union and I just said there is something really, really wrong here. And then I, it just really made me start to question where I needed to be. I just knew that what I believed in was a lie. was very disappointed in that. But I'm also not somebody that takes a lot of time looking back in the past. It's like, okay, well, this was a lie. The system was decrepit. And there's got to be something else out there. And uh, it was at that point where a friend of mine from Stony Brook, who had been the editor of the newspaper there, had told me about this synagogue on the Upper West Side that was being led by a couple of, of Argentinian rabbis that were involved in the human rights movement, um, which I was very familiar with as a Latin American history major, talking about stuff that I never learned in my temple. So I went to check it out, and I, I, it was, you know, Congregation B'nai Jeshurun at that time, and I just could not believe what I was hearing. I could not believe that there was a way to make this Torah, this thing that I'd been running from, didn't know anything about but was running from, really connected to your life, really relevant to every aspect of your life. And that was really the beginning of my journey back. And that was about 1991. So I'm so happy you just gave that information because until that point, <laughs> of all the people I interviewed, I'm like, how in the world is this guy going to bring Judaism into his story? Because it doesn't seem to be anywhere. Right, it doesn't seem to be You don't place. see any hints that it's going to yeah. come. But then you have that moment. So for those who don't know that shul, just describe a little bit more. Is it Orthodox, conservative, reform? Like what's going on there? What are the members Well, like? at the time that I went there, it, it, it was conservative. It's gone through a number of iterations now. I think it's completely unaffiliated now. But it was a conservative synagogue that drew in literally a thousand people every Friday night, which is incredible, mostly singles, which is a you know good thing. They had an organ. The singing was amazing. There was dancing. I mean, there was joy. And it just felt like this was something very special. And I connected with it instantly. So what I always find interesting about this part of someone's story is Okay, you're getting turned on by something Jewish, but I have to believe you're not thinking this is the beginning of a journey towards something in my life. It's just, okay, I'm connecting, I'm enjoying doing this, it feels good. Are you at this point at all thinking, oh, this could be the beginning of something, or are you just, are you just going to something that you're interested in? Wasn't, wasn't sure, but a friend of mine who was a, uh, a security guard at this particular synagogue, an Israeli guy, had turned me on to a Israeli philosopher named Yeshiao Leibovitz, who was very interesting guy, uh, very litvish in his perspective, but was very far to the left politically. Now, that wasn't the part that was interesting to me, but he really talked about this idea of, of commandment and that there is a creator out there and that our obligation, if there is a creator and we're created, to follow his laws. And the clarity that he presented that perspective from made a lot of sense because I started going to the synagogue, but I didn't quite understand why they were playing the organ on Friday night. I didn't understand why I and a lot of other people would go to a Trafe restaurant or go out to begin with after Friday night or on Saturday. It just didn't make any sense. There was a lack of continuity there that just didn't seem to jibe with what the Torah seems to be demanding from me. Also, you mentioned singles events. So does, does your future wife come into the picture at this point as you're exploring and trying to reconcile some of the things you're learning? Yeah, Where does she come in? She comes in about seven years after this. 
<laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. so so let's put that on the side burner for a moment. Keep going. You're starting to learn these inconsistencies. Yes. So what are you doing with this information? So uh, it's actually a, a Colombian guy, Jewish guy, who I'd met at this particular synagogue says, you should come with us to a place that's down the down the road. It's called the Kalbach Shul. I had no idea what that was. And he said, it's an Orthodox school. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second. The only Orthodox Jews that I had come into contact with at that point were people who were going to this very, very upscale synagogue on the, on the West Side. Three-piece suits, top, I mean, extremely intimidating, didn't look like anything that I was interested in. But he said, no, they'll accept you for what you are, trust me. So I walked into, into the Karlbach Shul, had a visceral negative reaction to it because I see this, this divider, it made me think of like the Montgomery bus boycott, right, back in 1963, that dividing men and women, and I just, I could have recoiled from this, but I, I gave it a chance, and I went, and, and they're, they're talking about all the things that you would talk about in an Orthodox shul, but, but there was singing, and there was joy, and there was passion, there was fire there, and um, it just started to make me think, okay, well, the things that I'm learning from Leibowitz are Orthodox. Now the things that I'm learning about here, going to the Kabbalah shul, that's Orthodox too. So this was really starting to resonate with me. And at some point, I stopped going to the conservative synagogue, even though I, I'm indebted to that place for actually having started me on this path. And I started going to the Kabbalah Shul every Shabbat. I was, I was there on Friday night. I was there on Saturday. I would take the, take the subway up from downtown on Saturday, but I was there. And that really was the entry point to my journey to Torah Judaism. So this is always a critical moment in people's story because you, you start learning all these things and you're getting turned on to it. And I'm hearing that from your story. And that's one thing, but it's a completely different one to say I'm actually going to adopt some of the things that I'm learning into my life. So is there a first moment where you say, this is going to be more than an education for me. This is going to become a way of life. Yeah, I mean, I stopped. I decided, look, I, I can't reconcile my behavior with what I'm learning in what I was starting to figure out was God's word. And so... I had a choice. Uh, I could ignore it, or I could start getting on the ladder. And so I decided to start getting on the ladder. You know, I stopped going out on Friday night, then I moved up to the Upper West Side, made it a lot easier for me to do those kinds of things, still going to the Kalbach Shul. And it was a lot easier for me to reconcile. I was not Shomer Shabbat at that time, but I was doing a, sort of a couple of the fundamentals that I thought were moving me in that direction and feeling very good that I think that I was finding favor in Hashem's eye for doing this. You know, there were people who, who went cut cold turkey and then all of a sudden became, you know, uh, I don't know whatever it is they, they became, instantly became religious, but that was not me. And it took me really about 15 years before I became Shomer Shabbat. And what's going on career-wise at this point? Because this is often an important part of the story also. You're starting to take on these more observant things, and they may or may not make it harder or easier for your job. So are you in a completely secular work environment? How is this religious piece reconciling against your career? Yeah, I mean, I was working as a lawyer for a big six consulting firm, big six accounting firm, uh, and doing a very good job as a manager there. But I, I had met this girl at an organization called Hineni in about 1997. And uh, it's like, wow, this is somebody that I really, really want to, to pursue. But I was doing a very good job as a, you know, working for this accounting firm. And they said, you did such a great job down in Virginia for six weeks. Now we're going to ship you off to Minneapolis for eight weeks. And I'm thinking, <laughs> wait a second, I'm, I'm in a place right now where I really am very interested in this person. And I just did not want to do that. I did not want to disrupt my life. It had nothing to do necessarily with religion. She was Jewish. It had nothing to do with anything religious. But I just felt like, you know, I'm at a point where I, I really want to start trying to commit to something for my personal life. 
and and ultimately I I left uh, I left this organization and, and started my own business. I met my wife at Hineni, um, which is a, for those who don't know was a and still is thank goodness is a, is, is an extraordinary organization started by Rebbe Esther Young Rice uh, to introduce Jewish singles and hopefully get married and have lots of kids and all that kind of stuff. And I was going and met her at one of her uh, shiurim that she had on the Upper East Side. And met my wife, and four months later, we got engaged, and shortly thereafter, we got married. But the observance was not so much of a part of my professional life at that point. So when you met your future wife, had she been raised observant, or she had a similar background to you? So my, my wife is Yemenite. She comes from a very traditional Yemenite background. I mean, they wouldn't know what a conservative synagogue if their life depended on it. I mean, you know, you know all the Hagim were the Hagim. Uh, and Yemenites are in a sort of a different class in that regard. And she was just, I mean, that was her life. She was originally from Brooklyn and lived in Manhattan, but that was what she knew. Israeli parents were Israelis. So this sort of journey that I had was completely foreign to her. Did that matter at all? Like you, you hear stories sometimes of if, if the family is all observant, how welcoming or not they might be to somebody who wasn't raised that way. And you'd like to believe that a Jew is a Jew and it doesn't matter. Right. But here you have a story where you clearly had two different backgrounds and they're not familiar with how you were raised. So is that an issue or not? Or are they just like, hey, he seems like a great guy. Go for you it. You know, there's a fundamental precept in, in Judaism of Ave Israel, love your fellow Jew. And I don't think there's anybody who personifies that more than my in-laws. They were just thrilled that she brought home somebody Jewish. She would never have dated anybody who wasn't, but I'm just saying, but I remember when we took the subway and I, I met them and we stayed there for Friday night. Her father let me do uh, Kiddush. I mean, I'm sitting here surrounded by Israelis. So I was like, there's one thing when you're a bunch of Americans, you can fake a lot of this stuff, but you know, I'm barely, the cup is sort of, it's like, it's, I'm panicking in the hand. I'm starting to sweat and all these kind of, and uh, they were just, just great. I mean, they were just, just amazing, amazing people. And the fact that I was an Ashkenaz guy that came from a you know crazy world or whatever, which probably they probably didn't know much about that time, really didn't factor in and never has. I'm glad you mentioned about having to do Kiddush because I always tell people they don't realize it's not just all the Jewish customs you have to learn, but there's this foreign language <laughs> that's overlaid on top of it. And my wife is Israeli also, and it's it's very nerve wracking to speak right, Hebrew. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, again, it's just one thing when you're a bunch of people, a bunch of people like us. There's another thing when you're actually articulating these words that people know exactly what it is that you're saying. <laughs> it was very, it was very intimidating, sure. very intimidating. But they were always just amazing people. So that was never an issue. So what are the conversations now like with your wife? You're getting closer and closer to being kind of fully observant, and I imagine you're getting to a point of thinking about having kids. So are you talking about, hey, we're going to actually raise them all in on being observant, or where are you at this point? Well, I was very. I think both my wife and I were very influenced by her sister. Um, who, thank God, have you know six wonderful children and great relationship. And we would go there. We were living in Riverdale at the time. And we'd go there for Friday night and just saw the structure that was set up around Shabbat. And I said, you know, that's really what I want for, for my family. I know that's what she wanted, but that's really what I wanted for my family. All the kids were educated in yeshiva. And my kids, well, I didn't have children at that point. Or actually, I had, I had a, my, my oldest, who was about one at the time, I said, that's really what I want for my kids. I've been on the other side. I know what it's like to feel where you're, you're following something that's a lie. I know that this is truth. I want my kids to have this. I want my wife to have this. I want me to have this. This is where we needed to go with our lives. I mean, as far as I was concerned. For her, it was already it was a given. But for me, it was something that I had to grow into. So you put your kids into the yeshiva system. I did. I did. Right? And then um, 
you know, to kind of make a long story short, they did. They, you know, they went to uh, the, the preschools and they started going to the elementary schools. And then, you know, 2008, 2009 came and, and uh, I had my own executive recruiting firm at the time, placing attorneys and did very, very well for a number of years. And then the Great Recession put an end to that. And we decided to move to back to Phoenix to kind of take a breather economically and, and be able to regroup and wait for the economy to come back. And I moved back to Phoenix at that time, which I had never had any intention of ever doing again. But moved into into the shtetl in Phoenix. There actually is kind of one. Um, but mm-hmm. my kids went to schools that were more Haredi. Um, in a couple of years, we actually had to take them and, and put them in, in a charter public school, which I did not want to do. But we were kind of in a position where we had no other options. But we were religious. You know, we were Shomer Shabbat at that time. It's interesting you're saying Arizona, because I would have thought that given how you described it from when you experienced it as a child, that that would have been crossed off the list of possible places. Although I imagine you're saying it's it's a different environment than what I experienced and we're going there observing and we're going into Completely. a religious community. So I'm not going to have the same experience. Completely. It was, I, it was a different part of Arizona, a different part of Phoenix in, in, in a community that we were very involved with. And it was a completely different, it was actually the, probably the most interesting place I've ever lived as far as Jewish, because being Jewish, because there were, everybody was um, a Balchuva, and there were people that were converts as well. But it was very, very different from here. Very exciting, actually, there. But completely different from having lived in a place like this before. Okay, so it's clear to me you have your kids on the right path. Like you said, you'd give anything to put them into a yeshiva system and give them that whole journey that you didn't get. But separate from that, you have your own growth to worry about. So what are you doing yourself as you figure out where you're going to land personally on all this? Well, I sort of studied this Yeshiyahu Leibowitz that, that led me to learning Rambam, the Mori Nebuchim, was very, very much of a hardcore rationalist, which would really make a lot of sense considering from where my politics were. But ultimately just found that that didn't make a lot of sense to me and uh, was involved for my shul in Phoenix in in hiring somebody who was a Chabad shaliach. And I was very anti-Chabad at the time, but he was an amazing human being and we hired him for the shul and, and he introduced me at some point to this book by Joseph Telushkin called The Rebbe. Um, the biography of Lubavitcher Rebbe, and I, I was just completely blown away by what I had read. And I started to learn with this rabbi, Hasidus Chabad. It just completely changed my entire life. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know that sounds like crazy, like sort of epiphany. You wake up in the middle of the desert, and all of a sudden, you know, you have this. But it really, it really changed my life. Since that time, about seven years ago, uh, I've been studying, uh, learning really in depth. Uh, some very, very profound, my mom, by some of the most, the deepest thinkers that I've ever experienced. And what it meant for me was how you fall in love with God. How do you fall in love with something that you can't see, you can't touch, you can't feel? And once you do it, how do you stay there? And that's what Chabad has done for me personally, and has has sort of completed my life in, in a way that I don't think I would have experienced had I done, had I been following uh, other streams of Orthodox Judaism that I was involved with before, really came to a very comfortable place for myself and, and try and impart that, that kind of passion, that kind of hunger for, for Hashem to my family and to, you know, without being preachy about it. I try my best not, sometimes it comes across there, but I try my best not to be that way. Um, but that's that's a place that I'm very comfortable with. I actually uh, have been teaching Tanya uh, for the last couple of years to people around the country. 
the Rebbe said that if you know Aleph, teach Aleph. Well, I, I know probably Dalit <laughs> now, so I'm probably up to Dalit. I don't, I, don't, I don't claim to know everything, not even close. But um, Advanced beginner. Advanced beginner, there you go. And I'll probably always be an advanced beginner. It just is a, is a place that I feel like my entire life had led up to this point. So all the things that happened were leading up to this point. And I believe that from a religious standpoint, not just because, you know, some sort of philosophical thing. I believe that religiously that that's exactly, I needed to go through all of those things in order to get to the point where I'm at right now. I'm really glad you're mentioning this level of detail because I think sometimes people think, oh, I became observant and that just means one thing to everybody, but there's so many levels and decisions you make within there. So I think it's important that you're pointing out this distinction of even when you made this decision, to become observant, you still have to find a home within that home yes. that you would be comfortable with. And there, with. there are so many different stra- streams, not strange streams within Orthodox Judaism. People sort of portrayed in the media as a sort of like this monolithic movement, uh, and it's really not. It's the, probably the most diverse uh, group within Orthodox Judaism, or excuse me, within Judaism that I've ever experienced, and I've kind of seen it most of it. And uh, you know, and since that time, I've, I've been involved in visiting prisoners upstate New York doing a lot of the things that a shaliach would be doing and really feel like this is how I connect with God. You know, one of the 20 million different ways that I'm trying to connect with him on a daily basis. So you mentioned you're at uh, level Dalid in your own uh, self-appraisal. So what are your goals for yourself over the next three to five years if you're going to get beyond that? My goal is, and I'm continuing, I'm doing actually doing this learning with my rabbi uh, at Anshe Lubavitch in, in Fairlow, New Jersey. Every Shabbat, we're learning Samech Vav, which is really some of the most profound Hasidic Maimarim that, that you can find anywhere to really delve more deeply into that uh, and really just grow in my understanding of Hasidus, grow in my, in my continuing appreciation for being an observant Jew and to never lose the love. You know, even when you're going through those difficult times and even when things start to stagnate, realize that that's a gift from Hashem. He's telling you, you need to, you need to double down. So uh, I just hope that I continue to feel that presence in my life for the rest of my life. As the man you are today, if you had like 15 minutes to sit down with the boy you were when you were 15, 16 in that, that protest period of your life, what message would you give to that younger version of yourself? Do exactly what you're doing. Because... So it's all part of the story. It's, it's, all, part, it's all part of the story because I made the best decision for myself at that time based on what I read, right? And then circumstances changed and I changed. So if somebody's going through a particular situation... Um, that they feel particularly connected to or passionate about, go for it. Make the mistakes. Don't make the mistakes, but but go for it and eventually and use that all as a learning experience. Beautiful. And that's a perfect lead-in out to our lightning round, which I'd like to close out with all of our guests. Are you ready for five super fast questions? You got it. All right. So number one, you mentioned in one of your early answers that you didn't really get to celebrate any of the Jewish holidays growing up. So what's your favorite one today as an observant Jew? Sukkot. Yeah, why? Because I think if you're a chassid, and even though I don't look like one, I'm like, I'm like a chassid in camouflage, right? <laughs> that that the symbolism, the meaning of of, of, of all the hagim are, are so profound, but, but there's something very special about the connectedness and the, the level of trust, bitachon, that, that a person has when you're in a sukkah. That's why I connect most with that particular holiday. Okay, and now as an observant Jew, you get to have Shabbos guests at your table. So what can they expect that you're going to serve when they join you for a meal? A lot of uh, Sephardic food. <laughs> Particularly for the, <laughs> Give right, us a couple well, examples. Well, you know, there's the, anything, any chicken that's got a, a, a spice, a schug, what to have, it is a, a very, very uh, spicy kind of uh, chili pepper, kubana and malawach and these different kinds of very <laughs> unhealthy breads, 
Like the gefilte fish, I don't think has ever crossed the threshold at the house before, not once. Somebody who's used to having very Ashkenazi food and they came to my house would probably, uh, hopefully, be open-minded to having something else. <laughs> <laughs> so if, you, if you're expecting chillin' and kugel, you're in for a nice surprise that night. You're right, right, exactly. Fair enough. So as someone who was raised secular and now you're observant, what do you think is, is one myth that as an observant Jew you'd like to clear up for secular Jews that they just don't understand about living an observant life? That you realize that all the little things that you do are connecting with God or build, building that bridge to Him. So it's not that, oh my gosh, I can't, put a, you know, I can't put an umbrella up on Shabbat, I can't do this, I can't do that. It's no, I, I'm not able to do all these things because it just helps me get that much closer. You know, you want to get closer to your spouse. You want to get closer to your kids. Well, these kinds of things help me get closer to the creator of the universe and in turn help me get closer to my wife and my kids. So it's actually all really beautiful, not a burden in that regard. I had the same feeling. I went from viewing this whole thing as a restrictive lifestyle to something that's like total freedom. So it, it took me a while to understand yes, that transformation. 100%. So now what would you say to somebody who is at the very beginning like you and I were, and opens up a sitter and is like, what in the world are all these funny looking letters? I can't read any of this, but I feel like I want to get started in some way. What would you tell someone who's like totally overwhelmed but wants to take a step? Read it in English. At some point, you're going to want to learn, start to learn Hebrew. And even if it just means find one prayer, find one prayer, go look through the whole thing. And even if that's the only thing that you focus on, read it, learn it, feel it. And that will be a springboard to doing a lot of other things, potentially. It may take a while to get there, but just find something, one little thing that you connect with and make it your own. And as someone who has the background in activism, what advice would you give to someone who's feeling like, I want to get involved now, but I want to do something for Judaism or for Israel. What's, what's a way to get started for someone who's like, activism is my thing. I just don't know how to get involved. Well, I mean, I think like organizations like APAC are very useful. I think organizations like the Zionist Organization of America are useful. Anything in my view that kind of promotes Aliyah, just to be able to get involved with, with an organization that connects you with your people in some way. That sense of connectedness is very important as an impetus to be doing other things, you know, kind of advancing in your own Judaism. Jordan, that is five great answers. You are officially out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.